electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Dami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and Dan Nathan. Tonight on Fast, getting bullish on the banks. The recent pullback in the financials has one of our traders hitting the buy button. We'll break down the names on the shopping list. Plus, former FDIC chair Sheila Baer is with us. Her take on the health of the big banks. Plus, sky-high outrage as the airlines seek another taxpayer bailout. Why this latest proposal could hit some major headwinds. And we've got an earnings alert on Costco. The stock falling despite a beat. We'll tell you uh, what is shares under pressure in the after-hours session. But we start off with what could be the next big short, real estate. Four reasons why we are asking that question tonight. First, the jobs market. Jobless claims coming in worse than expected, pointing to an uptick in layoffs. Second, a stimulus stalemate. Goldman Sachs slashing its GDP forecast in half as Congress stalls on a new relief package. Third, the virus, hospitalization rates ticking up in several states. And finally, the work-from-home boom, the secular shift underway as many big businesses rethink the need for large office space. So when you put these factors together, is real estate a house of pain? Could it be the next big short? Tim, what do you think? Well, and maybe number five are those new home sales numbers that came out today that showed the, the exodus out of the Northeast into the South is, is very pronounced. You, you basically doubled the amount of new home sales in the South region from April from around 330 to 630 in this number. Uh, Northeast isn't growing. A lot of these are major metropolitan areas, and, and a lot of these are a function of the work at home. So with that, um, I, I think this is something that's very, very concerning. Also, as with markets, you have to look at the commercial real estate a function of where have we come from. And, and where we've come from is a place where, especially as it relates to commercial office space and as it relates to uh, a lot of the, the, uh, the build-outs and the attachment to REITs because of zero interest rates that have allowed uh, there to be you know, a lot of inefficiencies in the underlying properties that still works out or have worked out for the REIT. So, yeah, I think it's something that's very concerning, not just a little concerning. Uh, I think we're still earlier in that trade because I think the reality is that there's still a lot of people hanging on, but the trends right now. Work from home is, is not changing. I don't know that we stay in this capacity, but location independence means that major urban centers do not, people, do not need people in big commercial office buildings like they used to. No yeah. question. You know, this question tonight, Karen, is a little bit different from how we t- typically start the show. It's sort of a thinking question. People see what these trends are out there. and it's like, <laughs> We the, don't normally know, think. Okay. <laughs> one plus one plus one plus <laughs> one together. And does that equal four or, or does it equal maybe a five in that this could actually be a, a tradable trend here? And so that's why we're asking this question. People are sitting at home, seeing all these things unfold and thinking, is there pain in commercial real estate? Is it time for some sort of a trade here? Mm-hmm. Well, Tim touched on the most important point, which is which is zero rates. That has been the ballast that has allowed the commercial real estate trade not to completely fall apart, right? Because these these properties trade as a, a you know as a, a cap rate, and the lower rates are, the higher the multiple of the earnings. But we don't know what the earnings will be. We don't know what the funds from operation will be, and this exodus is, I think, still early. So you know, I look at like the premier kind of name, like a Boston property 
it is only a little bit off its March low. It's a premier name, but they're going to own premier buildings that have higher vacancies than, than they're used to. The stocks come down a lot. Uh, I don't own it. I was shorted. I covered. Um, I, the other one that I would look at, to me, New York City is really not where you want to be. And so something like a Vornado, which is actually only very minimally off its lows, that has a particular emphasis on New York, which is just not where you want to be, a particular emphasis on Hudson Yards. Um, and so that would be one, even though it's not far from the bottom, I still wouldn't buy it here. So I, I've kind of stayed away from the whole space. And if rates move the wrong way, if rates move higher, there will be more pain here. Dan, you and I currently live in New York City. There are other panelists who have their permanent residences there, but not currently residing there. There's a lot of homelessness on the street. Crime is up. Uh, CEOs uh, of major corporations have written the mayor complaining about the quality of life. It's only a matter of time until they decide, you know what, maybe New York isn't cracked up to, for what it's supposed to be, considering how much we're paying in rent and how little of a footprint we actually need. Yeah, I think that's a real near-term thing right now. And I think that if you're on the streets of New York City um, in the last few weeks, you realize that this city has come back to life. There's a lot of residents who've come back to send their kids back to school, where offices are starting to allow people back in here. Let me tell you, I've lived in New York City for almost 25 years, and I remember what it was like after 9-11, and I remember what it was like after the global financial crisis. These were really blips for this town, for all intents and purposes, and I would expect the same thing to happen here. I understand that this is a different, non-quantifiable uh, sort of situation as it relates to commercial real estate, but the people of New York, you know, who've been here for decades and decades who make the city what it is, they're not going anywhere. Our friends who are out there, um, you know, in the, at the beach or wherever they are up in the country, they'll be back. And I'll just say this about the Vernado and the Boston properties and this. Yeah, they're lower lows to come. But, you know, the one thing I'd say to Karen is interest rates aren't going back. Um, anytime soon. I expect that you're going to see the Google and the Amazon and all these guys to come back in here and buy the lows of a lot of this real mm -hmm. estate. These hubs, Wall Street, Hollywood, Silicon Valley, Washington, D.C., all of them, they are massive innovation centers. And I just don't think that 100 years of progress in those sorts of hubs are going to be transformed, especially when we're looking at the, the COVID situation in the rearview mirror at some point in 2021. Dan tonight is playing the role of the optimist, Guy wow. Adami. So many people in the wow. past, though, have, uh, have written the obituary for New York City and other urban centers, and they've all rebounded in every single instance. So where do you stand on this whole thing? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So you started the show saying we're going to start tonight with a thinking person's question. And to quote the great Stockard <laughs> Channing from Greece, that leaves me out. And I know for you fans at home, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And I'll say this, you know, I, I like to read the Barons from time to time. They had an interesting article, and, and people are fleeing the cities, and municipal bond defaults are at the highest level they've been in 10 years. So I actually worked with Meredith Whitney for a while, and she famously called the whole bank problem back in the day, and then she followed that up with a call of municipal bonds. It didn't come to fruition, but, you know, if you think about what's going on in terms of cities, cities are in trouble. And again, there was a Barron's article two days ago discussing exactly what we're talking about now. I don't know how that manifests itself into the U.S. equity market, but it's not encouraging. And Dan talked about 100 years of optimism. And I'll give you a little uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, 100 years of solitude, because we're on the precipice of one or the other. And, you know, I think there's going to be a real problem with muni bonds going forward in certain cities. 
And just go and read that Barron's article from two days ago for proof positive, Mel. Yeah. Karen, are, are low interest rates, is that going to be the savior of a lot of these REITs? I mean, we, we've talked about so many sectors managing to get to the other side. Is this another instance where if they can get to the other side, whether it be one, two, three years down the road, they're in the clear because interest rates are still on their side? Yes, that absolutely could happen. But that doesn't mean the stocks are a good buy here. Mm. Right. I still think there's more pain to come. And one other thing, I love New York City, but I think as tax rates go up, which they very well could, we could see more of an exodus of New York City. I mean, we read all the time about, you know, um, people heading to Florida. Taxes are better. The weather's better. So I think and those people are often highly paid in the financial services business and they're leaving and maybe opening offices down there. So I'm, I'm a firm believer in New York coming back. I just don't think that means you need to buy the stocks right here. All right. Well, let's settle this score. Is real estate the next big short? Joining us now is Jonathan Litt, founder of Land and Buildings Investment Management, a hedge fund focused on real estate. Jonathan, what are your thoughts and specifically about New York City real estate? Hi, Melissa. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you know, we wrote a white paper on New York City real estate back in May uh, where we suggested um, that there's going to be a lot of trouble ahead. Uh, we estimate uh, office values will be down about 40 percent, and it's really a game of stay alive to 25. Um, as uh, I think Guy said, you know, we love New York. I love New York. The energy, it attracts the best and the brightest. That's not going to change. But between now and 25, we have to get these uh, office rents down. The occupancies are going to come down. The values are going to come down. The debt's going to have to be restructured. Uh, so between when the city thrives again, which it will, uh, once we get through this reset, uh, there's going to be more pain to come. We said that in May, mm -hmm. uh, and we still believe it today. There's no signs of a turn yet. People are trying to get people in the office. Companies are trying to get people in the office. Uh, there's a lot of resistance. And the fundamental problem, what's different in this recession than any other recession, is the work from home phenomenon is here to stay. It didn't work post 9-11. It works now. The technology's there. People are going to be home. There's going to be less people in office buildings than there were before, uh, even though the employee count might not change. So in terms of hitting those trough metrics, Jonathan, where are we in that process? How, how much progress have we made to going to those lows in terms of occupancy, We're just at the tip of the iceberg because uh -huh. you don't have the reset of rents. You don't have the leases expiring and the tenants either shrinking or, uh, or, or not renewing their leases. So we don't really know what the net operating income of these assets are going to be. Uh, but, you know, it's important. You know, you're, you guys are painting the brush of all real estate. Uh, you know, there's some parts of real estate which are seeing a major boom from COVID. They were in good shape before. They're in better shape now. And so real estate gets painted with a broad brush. Sure. The index is down 22 percent. Uh, there's a lot of stocks which are up uh, for the year and which have really excellent prospects going forward. So, for instance, you're long uh, residential home builders, correct? We're, we're long, yeah. Mm -hmm. And, and then you're short what then? Because if, you're, if your thesis is so strong when it comes to being at the tip of the iceberg in terms of the pain in New York City real estate, is it an Empire State Realty? How long have you been in this short? And how long do you think, how, how does this play out for you? So we don't comment on what stocks were short. We did in our white paper highlight Empire State. Empire State has multiple problems. They have the observatory at the top of the building, uh, which is 25% of the NOI. 
there's obviously no NOI today. Um, when one Vandy opens on 42nd Street, it's going to be a state-of-the-art observation deck. When people come back, I think the observation deck is going to be challenged. The Empire State Building has a lot of smaller, lower credit quality tenants. Uh, I think they're going to either skip or they just won't renew their leases. And then the retail, which is getting decimated right now, uh, is going to see material deterioration. It was before the pandemic and it will post the pandemic. Um, and, you know, again, I love New York and, you know, at some point I hope to, you know, lease some space there. Uh, but right now it's, it's not a, it's not a pretty place to own, uh, to own office buildings. Hey, Jonathan, it's Tim. I, I love New York, too. And New York's not the only city. In fact, there's probably folks watching our show around the country where uh, across urban centers, commercial properties have been and commercial real estate, uh, at least on the storefronts, have been empty for years. Um, you, you know, you go around major cities and you've seen empty storefronts well before COVID. So can you explain the dynamic of how long folks that seemingly were they in pain uh, for the last couple of years? Or was it really the idea that they were getting the rents and that the rest of the yield and the low rates made uh, those overall REIT investments very attractive? Or were they hanging in there? And is that part of your kind of your thesis right now? Well, look, I mean, the, 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 we had strong fundamental trends pre-COVID in single family for rent in warehouses, in data centers, in cell towers. That hasn't changed. If anything, it's accelerated. And even in a market like Northern California, uh, you're seeing an acceleration. But in those sectors that were challenged before COVID, it's gotten worse. Regional malls, shopping centers, uh, office properties, uh, and, uh, and, and hotels now. Uh, and so there really is a tale of two real estates. Uh, one which is under an enormous amount of pressure, uh, likely will be, has seen a permanent impairment to pre-COVID values. And those which are enjoying the opposite, I mean, to Karen's point, uh, we are at record low rates, uh, cap rates are going lower, and for assets that have good underlying fundamentals, like warehouses and data centers and single family for rent, um, you're gonna see a material valuation uplift, uh, and you're gonna see really incredible growth out of those companies. Jonathan, it's Karen, thanks for being on. What are you seeing in the commercial mortgage-backed securities market? What does the debt market for commercial real estate look like now? You know, I don't think it fully reflects uh, the damage we're going to see uh, in the hotels and the office. Obviously, it was well-known in retail pre-COVID, uh, but I think that there's going to be a lot of trouble in both the hotel and the office bonds that are out there, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. In your view, Jonathan, is there a real opportunity on, on the REIT side of things or in the in the debt markets? We're, we're uh, equity investors. Uh, so that's where we concentrate. Uh, for debt investors, uh, you know, I think there'll be some, uh, some interesting opportunities that will play out over the coming years. And last question, Jonathan, you know, as Tim had mentioned, we've got viewers from across the country. Uh, what we're seeing in New York, I know it, you've done a lot of work on New York City specifically, but is this basically a microcosm of what is happening in other urban centers? Yeah, you know, unfortunately, you know, population was already in decline in San Francisco and New York pre-COVID. That's accelerating. You know, we're hearing uh, apartment rents down 30% in San Francisco, um, which is, you know, it's just unfortunate. Uh, but, um, you know, this process has got to unfold. Uh, but likewise, if you want to buy a single family home in Northern California or you want to rent a single family home, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're few and far between uh, and the prices are going up. Jonathan, great to speak with you. We hope you, you'll come back uh, to FAST soon. Jonathan Lennon in Buildings. Uh, Guy Dami, a rather sober analysis. What do you think? 
stay alive till 25, but what do you do in 22? And, and you know, <laughs> there are a lot of places that are not going to be around at 25. Oh, nice. And, you know, Jonathan, if you follow his Twitter account, he talks about a, a stock AIV if you look at it. And it's just not performing. And it's fascinating how poorly the stock or the, re, the stock, the security is done on what's been a remarkable tape. And if you just sort of look at it and say, gee whiz, you know, here's something that's rolling over again. If you want sort of a, um, a barometer for how bad things are, AIV, I'm not suggesting you buy it or sell it, but you should absolutely have it up on your screen to sort of tell you what's going on in Jonathan's world. Yeah, by the way, it's an activist campaign. So uh, it's that kind of position that Jonathan holds in AIV. Uh, Dan, Nathan, you were playing the role of optimist. Are you still after what you heard? I'm not I'm not playing it. I'm just am. I mean, you know, you guys talk about stocks go up all the time, long time. I mean, our cities are not crumbling. They're not going away. People are sick of, you know, being with their families all day. They want to get back to work and they will get back to work. People in their 20s and 30s are sick of living with their parents again. They're going to go back to the cities. That's where the opportunities are going to be. They're not going to be in rural areas. So we've been talking about it on this show for years. Is America overstored? Yes. Are the malls going away? Yes. Has retail been really challenged with um, all of this online shopping that's just been um, crushing it, especially over the last year, but over the last decade? Yes. Um, you know, when you talk about some of these commercial real estate, like some of these big buildings, these big developments, the big cities, yes, they're going to have a really hard time. I don't even know the tickers of them, so I don't even know what to tell you, whether to buy or sell them or anything like that. I'll just tell you that if you want to buy, I'll buy New York and I'll average down the whole way over the next year or so, and I think we'll probably have a nice bottom at that point. In spirit, I am with you. Dan. But as the host of this show, Karen, I will ask you, after hearing what Jonathan has said, are you tempted to make a trade? Um, I, I mean, he's very good at what he does. Uh, he didn't have specific names. I mean, when I'm talking about the ones that are most levered to New York, that would be Vornado. Um, if I had to do one, that would be it. But I, listen, I love hearing bullish Dan uh, I am long New York. I'm long New York real estate personally. Um, I hope it comes back, but I'm, I'm not excited at all about what's to come in the office. The point he made that most stands out is we haven't seen the rents roll over yet. Mm -hmm. We haven't seen new leases yeah. and what those prices will be. And it's not in the debt markets right now. I think that's interesting, too. Uh, coming up, we are all over the after hours action in shares at Costco. Did bulk buying during the lockdown give a big boost to results? We'll dive into the numbers and later why former FDIC chair Sheila Baer says she is surprised by how the big banks have been acting. She joins us exclusively when Fast Money returns. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Costco. Shares sinking after reporting results. Let's get to Contessa Brewer with the details. Contessa. Hey there, Melissa. We saw a solid beat on earnings and revenue. Sales increasing monthly since March when stockpiling, of course, was a favorite activity of American shoppers. Same store sales up 11.4%. E-commerce coming in 90% higher. And though traffic internationally is down 1%, in the United States, it grew by about the same by 1%. Clearly, though, COVID's having an impact on the bottom line. Costco attributes a $281 million expense for the quarter because of premium wages and the costs associated with sanitation. And we're getting some insight into what's driving the sales here. It is those core offerings, groceries, pharmacy and the like. Online grocery grew several hundred percent. And fresh food, they say, was an especially strong driver of margin improvement. In part, they mention reduction in spoilage. Still, though, travel is soft, though it is seeing some modest improvement. And other ancillary offerings are soft, though they're seeing demand for outdoor furniture and bikes and that kind of thing. Finally, uh, they're noting some hiccups in the logistical supply chain, especially like electronics and PPE. They're still having problems keeping things like sanitary wipes and gloves in these stores. They have just started taking questions on the call right now, and I'll jump back on it, Melissa. Keep us posted. Contessa, thank you. Contessa Brewer. Uh, Let's trade Costco. Um, Guy, I know you know this. You look at charts all day long. I'm sure you've seen this one in Costco. It's been an underperformer versus retail, specifically during the pandemic. Yeah, it's obviously trading off here. So, look, I think they came smack in the middle of the range in terms of EPS estimates. They came upper end of the range in terms of revenue. Those are okay, but at that valuation, it's not good enough. Margins were okay. Everything was okay was not a blowout quarter. So the answer is, the question is, how do you trade the stock? And if you go back and look, I think this stock made a prior all-time high back in February around 328. And if the stock were to trade down there, and quite frankly, in this environment, that's not out of the equation, I think that's where you buy it. So if you haven't been in the name, you wait. 328 is your entry point, Mel. Yeah. Tim, you seem like a stockpiling kind of guy. Um, You like Costco here? (laughs) I, as much peanut butter, you know, and whatnot as I can get. Hagen-Dazs, uh, right? Look, I, I like Costco's, yeah, Hagen-Dazs, of course, yeah. Um, but I, I think if you look at where their e-commerce sales and adjusted e-commerce sales up over 90%, that's a great story. But relative to the, 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 the marginal increase in that business for them compared to a Walmart, um, they're, they're not winning the war here. Um, they're winning some battles relative to themselves. But again, I think the pressure that's going to continue to come from Walmart Plus and the pricing power, and, and there was nothing in, in the margins there that, that got you really excited that their mm-hmm. business is running a lot more efficiently. So uh, I think the trend, certainly the current environment, I think where we may unfortunately go in the fall um, with, with COVID-19, should continue to be constructive. This is a stock that, remember, although it had underperformed its retail peers, uh, was up you know, roughly 20, 25 percent into this number off of June. So it's had a nice run into this. Doesn't surprise me to see some profits. I wouldn't run too far, but it's not my preferred play. I like Walmart. All right. We're just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what is coming up next. Time to get bullish on banks. One of our traders is starting to see light at the end of the tunnel. We'll find out why. Plus, Sheila Bear warned us of danger if Congress didn't pass another relief bill. What she says now, after months of deadlock. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. Imagine you're on a John Deere mower. With a smooth ride, intuitive controls, and attachments for every season. You just have to get in the seat. 
Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. Banks catching a bid today on the back of a pair of upgrades for Goldman Sachs and Wells Fargo. But the group is still underperforming the rest of the market this year and is still about 25 percent off of 2020 highs. Karen actually bought some banks today. Which ones, Karen, and why? Well, as you know, I am long banks. I am long uh, J.P. Morgan, Citibank, Wells Fargo and Bank of America. But I added to J.P. Morgan today and this I think of as really a trading position. So I added calls and call spreads just expiring October 16th. So I'm really just playing for earnings. And I think it's setting up well into earnings because the stocks have traded terribly. They've actually been a hedge on my making money on any other parts of the portfolio. They kind of hedge that out. But I think that expectations are so low now that the bar's low. I think there's a good chance they beat by a fair amount. And if they don't, I don't think there's that much more downside here. But I'm just playing really for the short term. I think this is too low for earnings. And it's coming up October 13th. I think they'll all be that week. You know, I know you, you saw this in the Wall Street Journal today, Dan, but I think that the headline or the essence of the headline really captures it, that the banks love the markets in 2020, but the markets don't love the banks. Yeah, I, I mean, listen, it, it seemed like an easy trade most of the year to fade every rally in the banks. And there haven't, you know, been too many dramatic ones. Um, you know, they've massively outperformed the, 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 the broad market here. Um, to me, they were showing some relative strength at the beginning of September, but then there were no shortage of headlines. I think the banking, it goes back to some of the things that we were just talking about, the rates where they are, go, the exposure to, uh, lo, you know, loan loss defaults and, and bankruptcies, that sort of thing. I mean, they have a lot of exposure there, and I think they're more reflective of Main Street than Wall Street. And if you look at the outperformance from the investment banks who've been benefiting from all of, from the low rates and all the stimulus monetary and fiscalist and everything like that. There's a huge spread there, too. So to me, I think you could see Bank America back at 20. I think you could see J.P. Morgan back at 80. I think you could see Morgan Stanley um, back at like 40 bucks. I think that they have one more leg lower. But to Karen's point, that mid-October week, when all of those banks that make up maybe half the uh, weight of the uh, XLF report, is there a trade there? I just don't know if you start that trade today on September 23rd um, for October 16th. Let's talk more about the health of the banks. Uh, joining us now is Sheila Baer, former chair of the FDIC. She is now director of the Volcker Alliance. Sheila, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, we, we were just talking about the underperformance of banks, the stocks. Uh, and we also were talking to a, a real estate hedge fund investor who basically said there's a big downturn yet to come in commercial real estate. It's not reflected in the CMBS market. You yourself say that credit losses take time to work through the system. So, what does that mean for your view of the banks? So I think you do have to distinguish between banks that have significant capital markets activities and those more the bread and butter is taking deposits and making loans. So the banks that have significant capital markets activities have actually been enjoying, you know, significant earnings and revenues from those those businesses. And so I think you do need to distinguish in terms of the business model. Uh, for the banks that their primary uh, 
focus is lending and, and frankly the other ones we need right now especially households and small businesses but it does take a while for those losses to flow through uh, just because you don't you know a loan has to be delinquent a certain number of months before it's counted as a trouble debt the uh, some a lot of loans there's forbearance now under the cures act or, or through regulatory uh, approvals that still aren't having to be counted as trouble debt so all of that can kind of mask what eventually may be the credit losses uh, for for bank lenders, those especially again who primarily lend, and that's how they make their money. So I think there's still a lot of questions. Uh, and even though uh, the investment banks and those like J.P. Morgan Chase that have significant capital markets operations are benefiting from all the Fed uh, support, especially in the bond market, especially in fixed income, uh, I, I think there's only so long that that can go. I think what, what corporations in the U.S. have issued something like two trillion in, in debt now, almost two trillion, which is a year, you know for a whole year is, is a record. So you kind of wonder how much longer that will continue. Uh, but it's going longer than I thought. And in terms of the big banks, uh, they are in better shape than I thought they would be at this point. I still think they should be suspending dividends, but, mm -hmm. but thank, because of the Fed interventions and the capital markets, they've been doing better. Sheila, I'm not asking you to play stock market here, but you know Warren Buffett yeah, recently please. pared down his U.S. bank exposure. Um, in, for, yeah. in terms of like a name like Citi, for example, trading at 62 yeah. percent of what they tell us tangible book yeah. is, is that telling you something of a, of a larger problem that we're just ignoring or missing? Well, I think that's another problem with these very large institutions. Uh, there's really an issue about whether they're too big to manage. And so you are always having these surprises, whether it, you know, money laundering is the more, more recent thing. Uh, it looks like Citi, uh, you know, they, they, they infamously made a $900 million payment to Revlon's creditors they shouldn't have made. It looks like this is, according to press reports, is endemic to a, a larger problem they had just with their, their systems and the lack of integration of their systems and centralized risk management, which I must say was a problem they had in 2008. I was very disappointed that more of that hadn't been fixed, but they are very large, very complex, very difficult to manage. And so you always have these regulatory surprises, uh, whether it's, it's mispayments, whether it's uh, anti-money laundering, uh, failure of controls, that kind of goes hand in hand with investing in a large bank. You're never quite sure what you're gonna get, what the paper may see, uh, the paper may say the next day. Sheila, it's Karen. Thanks so much for being on our show. Uh, let me ask yeah. you, you said it, it takes a while for losses to go through the system, but we've seen front-end loading of loan loss reserves yeah, yeah. To, to cushion those losses. <clears throat> what do you think about the size of the reserves that have been, I, I think, enormous so far, and how yeah. will that be enough? Well, that's a good point, and because we, we, had, we had a new accounting standard this year, so they front-loaded a lot of the losses, more so than they would have been, certainly during the crisis, when we were constantly paying catch-up as, as these loans were going bad, trying to catch up with reserves just at a time when their earnings were under challenge. So that's a fair point. You know, I'm not a bank supervisor anymore. I can't see what the examiners uh, are seeing. Uh, I'm going to take it on faith. I think the examiners are, are absolutely on top of this, and so that those those uh, loss reserves at a pretty robust levels. That said, though, there has been some regulatory forbearance in terms of, um, you know, letting uh, letting uh, loans become delinquent for a longer period before you have to start counting them as distressed loans. And I do think that maybe making uh, bank balance sheets and financial statements maybe a little healthier than they might actually be. And then, of course, if there's a resurgence, uh, all bets are off because all of this is based on models and what your best guess is over various scenarios of what, you know, through the, through the cycle, through the life of the loan, 
the losses will be. And that could change if we get into another bad situation with the pandemic where, again, banks are very exposed. So I, I wouldn't. I know I know you're long now, and I wish I wish you the will. I heard that. <laughs> I wish you well on that bet. <laughs> I'm not owning any bank stocks. Thank you. Where I don't advise on the stock market, but I do not own any, own any bank stocks right now. <laughs> Maybe very telling, Dan. <laughs> hey, 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 Sheila. Hey, 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 Sheila, it's Dan. Um, last yeah. week, you I, tweeted something that kind of caught my eye. It was about spending here in the U.S. And you're talking about a yeah. busted uh, budget here, and you're talking about right. what yeah. some of the projections are. Or what, uh, yeah. What, so, can you talk a little bit about uh, budget deficits? What it means for growth? Yeah. Where we are? And I guess your point was: Are we thinking about this the right way? Well, I, I think, you know, just, you know, the Fed's, bless their heart, the Fed's buying a lot of uh, federal debt. You know, GPL's got our back, so we can keep issuing it. Nobody else is buying it. The Fed's going to buy it. So good. So we can fund deficits for as far as the eye can see. But I don't think that should absolve us a responsibility of being smart about how we spend the money. And there's not enough focus on that, not, and not just with regards to federal government spending. Uh, you know, you look at that $2 trillion of corporate debt that's been enabled this year through the Fed's uh, interventions, interest rate policies, and direct interventions in the corporate market. Where is that money going? How are we spending it? You know, private payrolls are below estimates. I, I still see a lot of dividends and buybacks going out, and that's fine. You've got the earnings to do it, do it. But if you're issuing, issuing debt uh, to, uh, to, pay, uh, to pay dividends and do buybacks, I don't think that's a really particularly productive use of the, you know, the Fed going out and taking the risk and, and backstopping the corporate debt market. So even in the private sector, uh, in terms of the monetary policy and, and the amount of additional debt that's facilitated, what are we doing with it? And I don't see it flowing down to, to households. Uh, and, and just longer term, I think that tweet was really more about some of the other programs we have. These are more longstanding issues, not tied to the pandemic. But we use intermediaries for so many of these federal programs, whether it's health care, whether it's education, whether it's mm -hmm. financial services, housing. And to what extent are these programs becoming co-opted by the intermediaries? So, you know, we spend so much more, especially on education and health care per capita than any other developed country in the world. And we get worse results, frankly. And that's because I think the design of a lot of these programs have been co-opted by the intermediaries, whether it's the schools, whether it's the health insurers or the health care providers. That's the way to their, you know, their, the economic incentives are misaligned. The money's going there, not to the ultimate, you know, end user, the public. Right. So I wish we would get a little smarter on that because we spend a lot of money already and nobody really talks about why are we getting such bad results? Of spending these astronomical sums, the answer always just seems to be with both parties: spend more, spend more, spend more, without asking what, how we are spending it. That's really something I wish we would focus more on in this in this presidential debate, especially. Sheila, we're out of time, but I, I got to clarify: okay. do you do you not own banks because you choose not to own banks, or because of a, of a conflict of interest policy that you oh, have to no. abide by, or? <laughs> it's not. It's not a conflict of interest policy. It's just. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have said that. I don't, uh, you know, yeah, well, a lot of it's just, you know, you couldn't own bank stocks as, as uh, when I was a regulator. But no, I have not weighed back in. I think I just don't worry about it. Uh, I think especially the very largest ones, I, I don't feel like I have as good a handle as I should understanding what they're about. And the Citigroup situation is a good example. As you know, I was a big critic of Citigroup. Mm -hmm. I was a big critic of Citigroup. I thought they had improved a lot. And I've been very disappointed to see what I'm seeing now. 
uh, in terms of a lot of the problems that they should have been fixed that apparently are not fixed. So right. that's it's the endless opportunity surprise with the big banks is is why you know sure. I don't really have exposure there. Sheila, but thank I'm not. You. I don't yeah. advise on it, equity. <laughs> I know. We got it. I I just (laughs) want to get clarification. Thank you so so much, Sheila. Appreciate it. Sheila Bear. I think the headline there, and and just Karen, to go quickly to you, is that Sheila Bear, Mm -hmm. former bank regulator, doesn't feel like she has a good handle on what is going on at the largest institutions. Uh huh. Okay. Why why do you think you do? Um, well, I, 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 why do I think I do? I've been in them a long time. I think I understand how they, there's two parts. There's what's actually going on in the bank, and then there's what's going on in the bank equities, mm-hmm. right? And sometimes those might disconnect. And so I think the bank equities are discounting a lot of bad things, maybe the kind of things that Sheila is afraid of. Right. Good point Like there. too much, more loan losses. All right. Coming up, too big to fail. While the airline industry could get billions more in government aid, even as countless other industries, hotels, retail, restaurants, continue to struggle. Plus, Tesla gets skewed. We'll tell you about the unusual activities surrounding Tesla options. Stay with us. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Thousands of jobs hang in the balance as federal airline aid is set to expire at the end of the month. Industry executives have been lobbying the White House uh, hard for yet another bailout, but that isn't sitting well with everyone. In fact, we have been talking about this on this show for weeks now. Check out this exchange between Andrew Ross Sorkin and JetBlue, a CEO, from this morning. Are you prepared to go into bankruptcy rather than take taxpayer money that would ultimately hurt your shareholder in the short term if you're really here to care about employees? I mean, the whole thing doesn't make sense. Well, Andrew, I, I, I understand. I understand the point you're making. And I and I, uh, I, you know, I think this all comes back to making sure the taxpayer gets value for money. What I'm what I'm saying is that I believe this program offers great value for money, because if, if these mass furloughs take place, there is a real cost of that. And it's a significant cost. It's an interesting argument to make, but yet there are plenty of other industries whose CEOs can probably say the very same thing, that without a government bailout, a handout, not a loan, but a grant, they will have to lay off hundreds of thousands of employees as well. So why is the airline industry and the airline employees a protected class guy? Does Robin Hayes make a good point here? No, because they somehow they feel that some sort of national security uh, situation with the air. No, I mean, of course not. And we talked about this, and good for Andrew, by the way. I'm a huge ARS fan. He's watching the show right now, I'm certain, and good for him for pushing back. And we said it a couple weeks ago. There are ways to raise money without going hat in hand to the government. And, and we also said when things were going really well, all these airlines, and now I'm painting with a broad brush, were using 90 percent of their free cash flow to guess what? Buy back stock when they could have been preparing for a rainy day, understanding that nobody could have seen this coming. But that's, you know, to a certain extent. And I said it then I said, Mel, you're from Harvard. Heavy is the head that wears the crown. And I'll say it again. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with being a CEO that comes with being an airline CEO. And then going to, you know, going to Capitol Hill hat in hand is not one of those responsibilities, in my opinion. And I totally understand that there are 30,000 jobs uh, at risk here. And I'm very sympathetic to that. But I'm not sympathetic to the sweet, sweet uh, guys and gals. What does this all mean for investors, Tim? 
Well, you have a case where a lot of these airlines feel like they might not need it. There are some that are not out there sure. lobbying. Let's be clear. I mean, and American looks like the only ones that, that are that are really you know pushing to, to get it tomorrow. Um, I, I think it, we've also talked about the inflection point for investing in the sector, and maybe that was the day when actually uh, you saw 50 uh, percent of, of pilot cuts you know, at, at Delta Airlines, for example. These were important moments. Uh, having the airlines be able to run and, and reel in their businesses at a time when international travel is not growing, the, the domestic routes uh, have, have been coming in uh, by the week ever since getting some optimism in the midsummer. So the, the reality here is, is I, I think investors need to understand what the free cash flow dynamics are or lack thereof, but really the balance sheet dynamics for the airlines. And I, I think if you look at a United uh, or you look at a Southwest, you're talking about, uh, at least at the current burn rate, the, the ability to get through 2021. Right now, that's all we can really do. And I think that's the way investors need to approach this. Uh, Sheila, and you brought this point up, uh, Dan, with Sheila, in terms of return for the spend. And so at this point, you know, Robin Hay has also made the point we want to make sure the taxpayers uh, get their money's worth as well. How do taxpayers get their money's worth here if they're shelling out money for the airline industry, but not other industries? I mean, the line is very hard to draw here. Yeah, they, they need to get their money's worth at much lower valuations. This is the sort of stuff we were talking about in March and April. This is the stuff that we remember in 2008, 2009, 10, when the government was taking stakes in companies to save them. Equity needs to be diluted. I'll just bring up Boeing, though. We have a chart right here trading today, closing at its lowest levels in three months. This is a stock that acts like it needs something it's not getting here. Um, looks like lower lows. And again, I mean, there's knock-on effects of all of these airlines not getting what they need. They need to start raising capital, put some confidence back in consumers but are in investors but that means diluting those existing investors exactly they do have options they're just not palatable karen and you made this point too it's not like the capital markets are closed to the airline industry right i mean i think we saw the government bail out gm if the capital markets wouldn't and they took the, the equity went to zero and the, the government took a stake we saw them do it with the banks right and, the, and that was good for everybody because they helped the banks and the TARP made money. They should get equity here if they want to bail out. Coming up, does Tesla have more charge left in its rally? Options traders are betting on just that. We'll bring you the trade straight ahead. But first, grab your boogie shoes. <laughs> because we'll hear from a red-hot sneaker company raising some big funds. Should you get your foot in the door on this trend? We'll bring you all the details next. Welcome back to Fast Money. If you're a sneakerhead, you've probably heard of the GOAT Group. They're an online sneaker marketplace that just raised another $100 million in funding. Joining us now to talk all about it, GOAT Group CEO, Eddie Liu. Eddie, welcome back to Fast. Great to have you with us. Hey, Melissa. Thanks for having me. What have you seen in terms of trends during the pandemic? Do people have more time to spend uh, on the platform or do they have less money to spend on the platform? Yeah, well, first and foremost, in terms of the funding. We're so happy for the team. And we started six years ago as just a sneaker marketplace, bringing trust and safety to the market. Now we've expanded into apparel and accessories and really grown internationally. So in terms of growth recently, I mean, we're at 30 million members now and 600,000 sellers. And um, what we saw in terms of the trends recently is that it already started pre-COVID. There is already a secular shift towards e-commerce before COVID. After COVID, now those trends have only been turbocharged. I mean, shopping in stores is no longer an option for the majority of customers, and we're never turning back. We're, what we're seeing is that our customers are saying, hey, 
shopping at Goat's actually a superior experience to shopping in a retailer. Because think about it, we have over a hundred thousand styles to choose from on Goat, as opposed to walking into a retailer, there might be two hundred styles on the wall. It's um, only this year's styles, limited selection, and they might not even have your size after you choose something. And we don't have to carry the inventory risk that traditional retailers have. Layer on our technology infrastructure with augmented reality so you can try the shoes on virtually. Plus, you can see our community content to see how our community wears the shoes as well. Hey, Eddie, it's Dan. You know I'm a huge fan of the Goat app here. Um, just real quickly, what are some additional categories that you want to use this capital to expand into? Because let's be frank, us sneakerheads, we love what you're doing there. What's next? Well, the main mission for Goat is to build a global platform that brings the greatest products together from the past, present, and future. So we did that with sneakers, where you can buy iconic Jordans from 30 years ago to mainstream styles from today, and we're even helping launch products with with companies. So we just started our apparel and accessories vertical. We're we're focused on that. And as a, an example of us launching products into the future, we recently just partnered with Alexander McQueen in their latest line called MCQ to exclusively launch the product on Go. So we're focused on our current verticals, but. The whole vision is to make people look and feel their greatest. Hey, Eddie, it's Karen. Um, let me just ask you a quick question. With the stimulus checks running out, are you seeing that pressure on your business? There are tailwinds such as the stimulus check, but what we've seen is that with our customer, it's, it's not just um, a buying thing. Like we have two sides of the marketplace. We have buyers and we have sellers. And on our seller side, we have 600,000 sellers. Many of them are it's the first time they've ever sold something online. And we're, we're, what we're so happy about is we've seen that um, a lot of these younger sellers are buying shoes, they're selling it on GOAT, making money so that they can fund the things that they actually covet. So it's a cyclical market and we're excited to help facilitate the transaction. Eddie, great to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Eddie Liu of GOAT Group. Coming up, it's been a bumpy ride for Tesla investors this month, but option traders say buckle up because shares are ready to accelerate here. That trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Tesla zooming higher today, but it's what happened to Tesla options that really caught our eye. Mike Coe's got the action. Hey, Mike. Hi. So Tesla always very busy in the options market. It represented over 5% of the total U.S. options market in terms of volume today. What we've been taking a look at is the fact that upside call options are actually priced higher in terms of implied volatility than the downside put options, reflecting investors' interest in buying those upside calls. There's a lot of open interest in the October 500, 600, 700, and even 800 strike calls, which have over 10,000 open interest. Today's activity was concentrated mostly, though, in short-dated options. The 400 strike calls that expire tomorrow were the most active, trading over 100,000 contracts at an average price of about $5.50. So it seems that options traders continue to be interested and believe in Tesla's upside here. It's really interesting. Mike, thank you. Mike Coe. For more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That's tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, Final Trades. It is time for the Final Trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. Gilead's been feeling some pain since its $21 billion immunometrics uh, acquisition. I, I do think this is the kind of transaction people wanted to see with this stock, and it's been languishing. Get a shot in Gilead. Karen. 
Yes, mine is Ulta. I bought some at the very end of the day today, which I added to, I bought some earlier in the week. But I think that they can make it in a resurgence or without either way. I think they're uh, next year, not expensive versus next year's earnings. Ulta. Dan. Yeah, Treasury yields have been stuck in the mud as equity has been careening lower of late. I think the TLT makes a move higher. That means rates lower in the near term. Guy. Sheila Bear only has 11,000 followers on the Twitter. That is ridiculous, folks. So follow the Sheila Bear on the Twitter and look for a reversal lower in the dollar, which means Freeport McMoran goes higher. Thanks for watching Fast Steve back here tomorrow at 5. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.